Welcome to part 5 of the practice of PDIA, Building Capability by Delivering Results podcast series. This 12-part series, based on a video series used for our PDIA online course, will walk you through the PDIA, or Problem-Driven Iterative Adaptation approach to solving complex development problems. More than 1,500 development practitioners in 90 countries have used the PDIA approach. People are vital to PDIA, and in today's podcast, Professor Matt Andrews will discuss who you need to do PDIA and how you get them to engage. Matt, can you share some of your research and thoughts about leadership? In 2008, I did some work with a group of scholars on leadership. It wasn't a subject that I knew very much about at the time, and it was something that honestly I kept away from because I wasn't comfortable with the idea of, of, of leaders who were imperative to every change story. It just meant that it was a difficult thing for me to teach because I thought, well, how do I teach my students that really what you need is some charismatic person who's going to change the world and all of the other things that you put in place are dependent upon that? Because I know that, you know, in my experience, there aren't that many of those people around. But I realized I couldn't keep away from the subject forever. So I engaged in a study of successful change that had happened in really, really tough places. Rwanda after the genocide, Afghanistan in the middle of the war, uh, the Central African Republic straight after the Civil War a few years ago, and a few other places. Places where you could be sure that if you were seeing anything positive happening, there was probably leadership involved because it's such a hard context. We asked a range of questions of a range of people who'd been involved in these, in these projects. And one of them was simply, who was the leader? Now, before we went, we spoke to people about what to expect, as any good academic would. And they all told us exactly the people who were going to be named as the leader in all of the different cases. So they said in Rwanda, they're going to tell you it's President Paul Kagame. Because it's a hierarchical place, and he is a very strong leader who leads from the top down. And that's just the way that it is. And we had all of these names in every case. Well, we interviewed about 150 people in 12 different places. And when we asked who the leader was, they gave us 107 names. How does that happen? I don't know. We also asked them a follow-up question, which was, why do you call them the leader? Just to make sure that we could understand what was going on in their heads. And when they gave the answers, they gave a bunch of different answers which have helped me think about leadership, not about individuals, but about individuals working together, what I call multi-agent leadership. Here are the things that they said. One, they said you need someone who's going to authorize the change. It's really important. You need also somebody who is going to motivate the people who are involved in the change process. You also need somebody who's going to provide money to those people. You also need someone who's going to work closely uh, to empower the people who are actually doing the work. You need people who are going to define problems. You need people who are going to provide ideas for solutions. You need people who are con going to convene all these other people together. And then you need people who are actually going to connect all these people to other people who are also have to be involved. You also need to have some people who are going to have to implement these things because they're going to have to tell you what will work and what won't work. And they're all going to have to step out and take risks at some point in the process. So we put these together and we said, wow, you can't just have one person at the top telling everybody what to do. Change doesn't happen as implementation by edict. It happens when groups of people take risks as a group to further things and to make change happen. So this is where the idea of multi-agent leadership came from. And wherever we go now, we have a look to see, are there many people involved? Do we see these kinds of functions routinely being uh, played out? And we absolutely do. 
Now, it doesn't mean that you, have one or two, you don't have one or two people standing out as champions, as people who are associated as the leader of change. Oftentimes, the person who's in that role is doing three different things. One, they're authorizing the change. Two, they are, uh, they are motivating people in the change. And three, they're convening the other groups together. They are very seldom the ones who have the ideas. They very, very seldom the ones who do the broad connecting. They very seldom have anything to do with implementation on the ground. Those three roles are the things that they do and they do them well. What I say is that the champion is the one who releases the multi-agent leadership solution. But the champion cannot do it on his or her own. So Matt, if the champion alone is not sufficient for change, then who do you need to do PDIA? A lot of people ask us, who do you need to do PDIA? It's a question that we title the agency question. And, uh, it's a question that brings together thoughts about politics, thoughts about uh, administration, bureaucracy, capability. Who are the key people that you need? What do you need from those people? We have discussed this in the past and we've spoken about the different roles that you need and we've said that you need people who are authorizers, you need some people who are implementers, some people who are uh, empowerers, etc. But I'm just going to take you through a very brief schematic of what we find when we're in the field are the key people uh, to at least start this with. We're then going to have a couple of other videos talking about teams, which are the key vehicles through which this works. Now the first thing that I'd say is that you need somebody who we would call an authorizer. And the authorizer is going to be usually when we work in government, a minister or a deputy minister or, or somebody has official authority to convene a group to work with us. And that person usually comes on board because there's a problem that he or she is facing that they haven't been able to deal with and that they need to deal with and deal with fairly urgently. The next thing that that authorizer would do is that authorizer would constitute the team and their role then as authorizer and convener is to bring a team together. And that team is usually going to be comprising of five to seven people. And those people can come from the organization or they can come from a selection of organizations. It depends on the problem. Usually it depends on the problem and it also depends upon the convening authority of the person who brings them together. And that team becomes the vehicle that essentially does the PDA work. Now, it's really important that the people in the team are motivated to be part of the exercise. It's really important that the authorizer gives them the space so that they can be part of the exercise. And as we go along through the process, we find that the team can change over time a little bit. And the team also can develop networks and connections uh, outside of itself to leverage resources, to leverage ideas, to leverage uh, other experiences that they need to actually get the job done. That really is how we start with the agency issue in PDI. You speak a lot about teams. Can you share some of your wisdom on building teams? Uh, Richard Hackman provides a lot more wisdom than I'm going to give you in these few minutes. Speaks about successful habits, successful characteristics of teams. So let's say that you start with your team and your team has got maybe five to seven members and that's an important number because Hackman says you bring the complexity of your organizations and your own networks into a team. So when you add people, you're not adding just an additional person, you're adding the, the burdens of all of their organizations and it's really difficult to have a team that is more than five to seven members. 
And we find this in the, in the field as well. We find that when you have bigger teams, uh, it's really hard to determine who's responsible for things. They find it harder to find times when they can meet with each other. There's just practical issues to this. So the first thing is the size of the team. Be careful not to make it too small, but also not to make it too big. The second thing is that it needs to be a real team. You need to know who's in the team. And we start off and we want to know who are the names, what are their kinds of roles, uh, where do they come from, and they need to know who's in the team as well. Now this sounds like a really simple thing, but when you read Hackman's work, you'll find out that he did a lot of research going into teams and uh, commercial organizations, and he asked the questions to team members, you know, how many people are in your team and can you name them? And it was quite common for people to say, uh, five people, and here's who they are. And then he'd go and he'd interview one of the people. He'd say, how many people in the team? Ten people, here's who they are. How many people in the team? Three people, here's who they are. That's not a real team. You need to be a real team. You need to know who's on your team. And you need to be committed to each other. The second thing that I would say is you need to be an active team. And one of the things that Hackman says is teams are not committees. They're not groups that get together now and again to talk about things. They are teams that do things together. It's really important. Teams, many people have gone on team building exercises where they climb buildings or they do ropes courses or they go through jungles together. And sometimes those things are really silly, but the underlying thinking behind them is that when you do things together, you build a rapport with each other, you build trust with each other, etc. Now, we don't do those things in PDIA because we'd rather you didn't mess around in the jungle, you just mess around in your jungle, right? You actually started de dealing with your problem. But that means that you need to meet regularly. That means that you actually need to uh, combine on tasks. Don't break up and do six different tasks and then come together and report on them. Break up into two or three groups. Do the tasks together. Learn a little bit about each other's strengths. Learn from each other. Support each other. So you need to be a real team, you need to know who's on the team, you need to be an active team. Now you also need to have a team that has dedicated time to meet. And we really mean this. It, it, we find that with a lot of teams that say every week we'll determine when we're going to meet, they never meet. Because every week they spend their time trying to coordinate their diaries. Much better to say we're going to meet at 7 o'clock uh, on Tuesday evening for an hour and a half. That's what we're going to do. You need to talk, you need to share, you need to become... Uh, real, real colleagues with each other. Now, does everyone have to get along? Well, it's great if you do, but you don't always get along. And actually, you shouldn't be choosing people to be on your team just because you get on with each other. It's always good to have people who are going to spar with each other, who are going to bring different ideas so that we can learn from each other. And that's an important point of a team. We're not here to just be yes men or yes women and to just agree with, every, with everything the other team members say. We're here to help ourselves create something that is new. And to do that, you need to have diversity on your team. And this becomes a really important issue for the authorizer. Is the authorizer has to play his or her role holding the team together. Has to create an environment in which the team can do the things together, in which the team can thrive, in which everyone can be motivated. Building a team is really difficult. Keeping a team together is even harder. But it is vital for the purposes of PDA. Matt, if you're working with a small team, how do you think about creating broad agency? So when we create teams, one of the things that we focus on is the size of the team. We don't want a team that's too big, maybe five to seven people. 
Now, for a lot of the wicked problems we're dealing with in PDIA, that's really difficult because you're dealing with a problem that impacts many organizations, has many different uh, officials from those organizations, politicians involved, etc. And one of the reasons why they end up in the PDIA world is because of all of these different agents. So you say, well, how do we have to five to seven people on a team? And in many cases, uh, we would have authorizers say, you can't do this with five to seven people. You've got to have 20. We say, well, 20 you can't move with. And so how do we deal with that? Well, we, we develop what we call a snowflake strategy. And the first strategy is you have your team, and your team is five to seven people. It can change a little bit, but you don't want to change too much because you actually want to hold your team together as much as possible. But you want to leverage relationships of the people who are on the teams. So this is not the extent of your agency strategy. As you move along, you find out that you know, the team says, we need data from a certain place so that we can better understand the problem. Say, so, well, where does that data come from? And this person over here, let's call them person number A, says, well, actually, I know a guy. Let's get that from this person over here. Reaches out to this person, and this person says, well, I don't really have that, but I know someone who does. And they say, well, I have that, but how about we get better data from this person over here? And then we say, well, how about we also use that information so that we can bring someone else into the loop? And what do we do? Well, we've created a kind of a connecting point. Now, we can do that with every single person in our team. These people don't have to be in the team, but they create separate teams of themselves. And we can essentially build the big network model out of this and create a shape which is commonly called snowflake. Now, the snowflake is an interesting uh, 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 phenomenon in science because it's known as one of the strongest structures that you have in science. And so when you create this kind of structure, it can be something that's really strong. You have your pivotal team with their key relationships that branch out to others. Now, the beautiful thing is, if you think about this, you can carry on going forever. And it means that you can create both a strong central structure for PDIA and a broad reach structure so that you can bring a lot of people in. Some of the tires are going to be strong tires, some of the tires are going to be weaker tires. But this is what's going to allow you to get throughout the system, but also have a small enough unit that you can move along quickly. Thank you for listening to part five of the Practice of PDIA podcast series. Tune in to listen to part six, where we will discuss how to construct problems. To learn more, visit bsc.cid.harvard.edu.